After my friend Mandy and I did an episode on the Perrin family haunting, episode 22, which was the inspiration for the first Conjuring movie, we have had tons of email requests for an episode on the case that inspired the second Conjuring movie. So Mandy is back by popular demand to discuss the Enfield poltergeist. Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Melissa Lancaster, and I'm here with my friend Mandy, who is very interested in all things supernatural. Hi, everyone. Mandy's done a few other Supernatural episodes with me, and she might sound a bit different today because the previous episodes were recorded remotely, but we're together in person today. It's great to finally be around people again. Feels good to have things back to normal. Right? The Enfield Poltergeist is a really popular haunting, especially in London, where it originated. It's comparable to how well we know the Amityville story here in the U.S., It's the only haunting that I'm aware of that includes a statement from the police, which I think is really interesting. I find that interesting as well, that this case has a police statement. I don't think most haunting claims have law enforcement on their side, at least none that I've heard of. Yeah, I don't think that usually the police are called in at all, which, I mean, if you are hearing strange things and strange things are happening and you really don't know what they are, that seems sensible, right? It does. The haunting started in August of 1977. Peggy Hodgson lived in a rental home on Green Street in Enfield, London, England. Peggy was a single mother of four children. Oldest two children, who are the most pertinent to this story, were 13-year-old Margaret and 11-year-old Janet. The younger two children, who are much lesser noted in the story, were Johnny and Billy, who were 10 and 7. This goes back to what I was talking about on the Perrin family episode. Um, Teenagers, especially females, are common in poltergeist activity. And did you say that was because of like their hormones and their emotions? Yep. It like feeds the energy? Absolutely. According to Real vs. Hollywood, it all started after the kids were playing with a Ouija board. There's no real timeline given, But I did see that it said just a while before the haunting started, they were playing with the Ouija board. But there weren't really any details given about them playing with the Ouija board. Like, was there any activity? Did anything happen? It was just that the haunting started a while after they played with the Ouija board. Well, the kids went to bed one night, apparently after playing with the Ouija board, in August when they heard scraping sounds and saw a chest of drawers moving. Mother Peggy could hear these noises in the main part of the house as well, and like any normal mother, went to her kid's room to tell them to knock it off and be quiet. But Janet and Margaret, the oldest two children, were huddled in the corner, terrified. They told their mother the dresser had been moving, and she responded with, don't be silly. Normal. But the dresser started moving again, with Peggy still in the room. 
Peggy went to the dresser, and according to bbc.co.uk, Peggy stated she pushed it back twice, but was not able to push the dresser back a third time. That's really scary. I wonder how much it was moving. Was it subtle or violent? It didn't say, but I did see that they felt it was an attempt to keep the children in the room. So I get the impression it was like moving toward the door. Oh, okay. As if to block it. Creepy. The family of five ran across the street to the neighbor's house. Vic and Peggy Nottingham, and not to get confused, we have two Peggy's in the story now, but we won't for long. Vic and Peggy Nottingham opened their door to the family, and Vic did go across the street and check on the home. Now, I didn't really see it clearly stated, but I believe Peggy and the children may have stayed across the street with Vic's wife, Peggy. I'm not positive, but I feel like it's a really important detail. Like if they were in the home with him or, you know, if he was in there alone. I think I would have stayed with the neighbor too if that happened to me. I I mean, I totally would have stayed across the street with a neighbor. I do wish that we really definitively knew because I think it's really important. You know, a lot of people were saying that they really felt that the haunting revolved around the two girls. So I just kind of want to know if they were there or across the street. Right. And I do think that them staying, if they did stay the night across the street, I think that does validate their story. I wouldn't take my four kids out of the house to go somewhere overnight if it wasn't truly needed. Um, And I also would have slept downstairs Well, I know for a fact that they did not stay the night across the street, but I think that they might have stayed at least a few minutes just while Vic checked out the house. But I did read that the family was sleeping in one room for a while with the light on. But Vic went to check out the house, and when he walked through the door, he heard knocking immediately. And he checked the house and tried to find the source of the knocking, and he couldn't do it. And that was when he told Peggy he thought it was time to call police. Police Constable Carolyn Heaps was the first to respond to the call. And when she entered the home, she claims that she saw a chair move. According to bbc.co.uk, Carolyn is quoted as saying, It came off the floor, maybe half an inch, I should say and I saw it slide off to the right about three and a half to four feet before it came to rest. The police definitely thought it strange, but advised the family that there were no laws being broken and it just wasn't a police matter. Can you imagine the helplessness you would feel when the police tell you that they can't help you? I mean, I do understand there really isn't anything they can do in this situation, but it would be hard to hear. It really would. Especially if you think that there could be like somebody in your house or I mean, that's definitely a thought I would think if things, you know, there's knocking and things like that. Right. And then, you know, she's a mother of four children, so she has to protect her kids. And this activity continued and she didn't know what to do or who to call. So she ended up calling the Daily Mirror. I took a few minutes and looked into the Daily Mirror and it seems to be a very popular tabloid style newspaper. I read that it gets mixed reviews on actual factual reporting. It described it as being 
trustworthy, but with the use of loaded words. Photojournalist Graham Morris, who worked with the Daily Mirror at the time, was asked to go to the home. It seems that he was in the home for some hours with no activity. Most stories state that he was leaving the home when the activity started, but bbc.co.uk has him as saying that the activity seemed to surround the children, and Graham was in the kitchen when the adults brought the sleeping children in one by one. They were being carried in the arms of the adults. And quote, the last one to come in was Janet. Suddenly things just took off and started flying around the room. I got hit with a Lego brick over my right eye. End quote. He remains consistent in his belief that the objects were not being thrown. He states that he had a clear view of everyone in the room and that no one was throwing anything. Graham is also the photographer that captured pictures that are said to be Janet levitating. It is important to note that he wasn't in the room when the pictures were taken. I get the impression that it was set up like a camera that was just set to go off like every few minutes or so. These photos show Janet above her bed or within jumping distance of her bed. She isn't in the classic flat position that I imagine like from the movies of people levitating. She's vertical. Skeptics believe that Janet is jumping on the bed and when you look at the pictures, one still photo at a time, it doesn't really look to me like she is jumping on the bed. She's kind of in like different poses and kind of making like faces that aren't exhibiting any type of joy that you would normally see when a child is jumping on the bed. But I did see a few of the still photos like kind of played together like a movie. And when they present it that way, it totally looks like Janet's jumping on the bed. It is important to note though that these pictures were put together, but they weren't taken in the same instance of levitation. I saw the pictures a while ago, and to me it does look like she's jumping. It's hard to tell. I do agree with her her face though. She doesn't look like she's having fun, but if she was faking it, maybe she was trying to make a face to indicate that. Right, to make it look like she wasn't having fun. Right. Graham did describe his experience in the home as life-changing, so he was definitely convinced. The Society for Psychic Research was called in by the Daily Mirror. This is a very old, long-standing organization in the UK. It was formed in 1882. A philosopher was its first president. They study hypnotism, disassociation, thought transference, mediumship, whatever. I don't even know what this is, but it's like Reichenbach phenomena. I've never heard of it. It's definitely hard to read, though. Apparitions, physical phenomena associated with seances and haunted houses. So Maurice Gross was the researcher that came to the home from the Society of Psychic Research. He led a team of investigators. I watched a video interview with him by History versus Hollywood, and he was 74 when this interview took place, and he just seems like the most adorable, like, sweetest man. He gave some background information on his life. 
he married a beautiful woman and they showed like pictures of her when she was young and it was just one of those like classic old photos where you're like oh my god she was just gorgeous you know i love those old pictures and they had only been dating 10 weeks when they got married you know he said that people said it just wouldn't last and he joked that you know maybe it won't that it had only been like 51 years (laughs) but they weren't without their life tragedy the couple did have a daughter who passed away in a car crash and it just so happens that her name was also janet maurice investigated the home very thoroughly and has 180 hours of audio footage of a strange voice coming from Janet Hodgson. Skeptics believe Janet is a talented ventriloquist, and I totally thought I was on board with that theory until I heard the voice. Let me play a clip for you. I could not believe that that sound was actually coming from an 11-year-old girl and she's barely moving her lips. Graham states that that it was determined that Janet was using her false her I'm sorry, her forced vocal folds to make this voice. He stated that using your forced vocal folds usually leads to damage to your vocal cords. And she was able to make this voice for 180 hours of audio footage with no damage and she was just able to go back to her normal speaking pattern with no hoarseness or anything. Now, I looked this up and I did not see any easy answer to the question of does using your fo- your forced, I'm never going to be able to say that. It's hard to say. <laughs> your forced vocal folds result in damage. There were very detailed technical answers to this question that me with my zero medical knowledge did not feel comfortable really coming to a conclusion with. But my best guess, just based on what I saw, is that it can result in damage. I didn't say anything stating that it would always result in damage. Regardless of that, I do think that this is a super, super strange voice coming from an 11-year-old. And here's a clip of that voice. I agree. It doesn't sound like it's coming from a child. I think that her voice wouldn't have been normal after 180 hours of recording. I know my voice can get hoarse if I talk too much in my normal voice. I've never experienced that, but... I can't imagine. And it it was over 18 months, right? Um, But still, I mean, that's a lot of, and I I believe it was like a lot at once, you know, very often, like it would happen for like a few hours at a time. Right. And I mean, to be coming from an 11-year-old girl, it doesn't resemble anything I've ever heard coming from an 11-year-old girl. I'm sure that you guys have heard the creepy voice at the end of my podcast that says, thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. If not, hang around to the end and listen. And that's my nine-year-old son who, even though he can't listen to most of my episodes, is really supportive of my podcast. He thinks it's really cool. He's always coming up with ideas for me, and that was one of them. And I thought it was really cool that he wanted to be involved. 
it took him like a few different tries to just get like the whole sentence out like without messing up to get that recorded and his throat got irritated just after that he was just like oh i'm not gonna be able to do it again and so we just kind of took the last one that he did even though it wasn't exactly like what he wanted and we just used it i guess that might be what they mean when they're talking about forced vocal fold damage (laughs) but um you know he wouldn't have been able to just continue talking like that it's definitely a creepy voice from an 11 year old girl and when janet was asked where she felt like the voice was coming from she stated that it felt like it was coming from the back of her neck, not her throat. But what I find more creepy than that, how the voice actually identified itself, although the poltergeist did give a few different names, one being Fred, the voice identified itself as Bill Wilkins. During one of the many times speaking with the ghost, it was asked if he remembered how he died. And the voice actually stated, and this is a ghost quote, I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep and died in a chair in the corner downstairs. Bill Wilkins' son, Terry, confirmed later that Bill did die in a chair in the corner downstairs. I do wonder if the family knew the story of Bill Wilkins prior. They probably didn't have any connections with his family or anything, But possibly, you know, things like neighbors saying, oh, did you hear about the man who died in this house? You know, just people repeating the story. And, you know, sometimes you don't think your kids are hearing stuff, but they are hearing stuff. You know, my son has told me many things that he's overheard me say that I, you know, didn't want him to hear. I didn't see any indication that the family knew the details of Bill's death prior, but I also didn't see any indication that they didn't. And I feel like that's really important information. Yeah, it is. Um, They could have also heard about it at school. And I do think that her description of his death was pretty accurate and not something that most people that weren't close to the family would know. Like, I I don't think kids at school would know all those details of how he died. Like, make it up just that accurately. It does seem really strange. Right. Like, I don't think kids would know what a hemorrhage was at that age. It is like a really big word. A BBC radio reporter named Roz Morris covered this story. Maurice Gross had a nighttime vigil and she joined in. They heard a very large crash from upstairs and found a chair had been flung nine feet across the room. She was convinced the girls who were sleeping in bed had not done it. Others that investigated the home included Guy Lyon Playfair, who believed the haunting was real and later wrote a book titled, This House is Haunted, The True Story of a Poltergeist. It is said that he often had doubts and would wonder if the children were playing tricks on everyone, but he did come out believing that there was an entity in the home. Ed and Lorraine Warren also visited the home. They didn't have as big of a part in the investigation as The Conjuring portrayed. They were only at the home for about a day. Um, I read that they came uninvited, and but they did leave believing that an entity was in the home. There's a quote from Ed Warren taken from Gerald Brittles, the demonologist, about the haunting. Quote, those who deal with the supernatural day in and day out know the phenomena are there. There's no doubt about it. 
Therefore, when people tell me they don't believe in ghosts or supernatural forces, what they're really saying to me is they're not familiar with the data on the subject. Yet the data is there should one care to look. In fact, much of it has been collected under such rigid conditions as to make a lot of other scientific research look pale in comparison. For example, take a case Lorraine and I began investigating this past summer in Enfield, England, where inhuman spirit phenomena were in progress. (laughs) I know, it's a lot. Now, you couldn't record the dangerous atmosphere inside that little house, but you could film the levitations, teleportations, and dematerializations of people and objects that were happening there. Not to mention the many hundreds of hours of tape recordings made of these spirits' voices speaking out loud in the rooms. End quote. The haunting persisted for 18 months. I read that Janet felt it wasn't there to harm the family, but I also read that the scariest moments were the levitation as she didn't know where she was going to land, and the time a curtain wrapped itself around her neck. I do think that 18 months is a long time to play a trick on someone if it was the kids that were doing this. And I can agree with that. I don't think my kids had ever stuck with anything for 18 months. I know some kids do, but... Right, I feel like my kids would have gotten tired of it much sooner. And besides attention, like what were they getting out of this? I mean, end result, she was called Ghost Girl, and it seemed like a lot of bullying and ridicule. Right, so if that were happening to me and I was making it up, I would stop talking about it so the bullying would stop. Yeah, I mean, I can agree with that. I mean, I think going into it, right? Like, if people are making something up, going into it, you know, they don't know the outcome. Because a lot of claims, you know, are that, you know, they were making it up. But then there's also the claims that say they weren't making it up because they didn't gain, like, financially or anything out of it. But, you know, you never know the outcome, right? Like, I saw that as well with, like, the Amityville. I mean, they didn't know if they would or would not make money. Right. I mean, you, you know, you think you could and you might take a chance, but like you don't really know if you will or won't. So I always think it's strange when people use that as a reason, like if people did or didn't. And, you know, the girls probably didn't think much about the bullying, but you would think that they would stop. No, but you would think that they would stop because they would want the bullying to subside. Right. I I would if it were me. I would actually, even if it were true, I would probably quit talking about it just so I wouldn't get picked on anymore. That's true as well. That's a good point. During the 18 months, there were 30 witnesses to the haunting. There was even a baker and a lollipop lady. Two separate people. So, you know, not like a baker and a lollipop lady. It was like a baker and a lollipop (laughs) lady. They claimed to have been walking by and saw Janet levitating. And I don't know if they were like walking together or if this was like two separate instances, but I really do hope they were walking together because is that not adorable? Like a baker and a lollipop lady? It's completely adorable. I imagine them living in a gingerbread house with lollipops on either side of their driveway and it smells really good and it's like a fairy tale. Yeah, like somebody points and they're like, there go the baker and the lollipop lady and like just like, you know, music starts playing. In the yeah. 
The haunting seemed to subside after a visit to the house from a priest. Not everyone was convinced that the haunting was real, though. Numerous skeptics claimed the children were putting on a show. I mean, we've mentioned this throughout. And the children were caught in a bit of trickery as well. A camera that had been set up to catch activity did catch Janet in the kitchen. She was bending spoons and trying to bend some sort of iron bar. They did also catch Janet banging on the ceiling with the handle of a broom. Many believe that the levitation pictures are, we've mentioned this earlier, Janet jumping up and down on her bed, um, positioning herself in the air for the camera, and it was known that Janet was a very athletic gymnast. Is there video evidence of Janet bending the spoons? I didn't actually see it. I don't believe it was actually a video. I think that these were still cameras in the house set to take pictures like every so many seconds or whatever. Okay. Well, I guess, are there pictures then of her? I didn't personally see them, but I think that there were pictures at one time. That was the impression that I had. I didn't see the pictures. Right. Because I I do feel like if they want to prove this is a hoax, that they should release those pictures. Yeah, and they might be there. I mean, I looked at a lot of stuff. I just might have, you know, missed those. I mean, there's a lot of information out there. Right. Okay. So they actually had a ventriloquist visit the home, and his opinion was that the voice was just Janet using vocal tricks, which kind of blew my mind. I mean, I haven't seen that many ventriloquists, but I've the few I have seen did not do that. And I mean, if she was talented like that, she should have really been doing like every school talent show. Right. She would have won. People ridiculed the professionals that supported the theory of the haunting, basically saying that they had been like easily manipulated, which really makes me sad because I just don't like it when people treat people that way. You know, even if you don't believe it, you know, you don't have to, you know, ridicule someone else professionally for, you know, believing it. Some have a theory that supports the mother's involvement in orchestrating the haunting. She was a single mom and she lived in government housing. The home was nice, but it was a bit small for the family. It's believed she may have been trying to get out of that house and into a bigger house. I will say, though, that if she was trying that, it didn't work, and she did live there until she died. The family maintains to this day that the haunting was real. I think the lesson here is don't play with a Ouija board unless you really want an exciting 18 months. (laughs) So what do you think, Mandy? Do you think it was haunted? Like I always say, I think that there's a possibility. I can't prove or disprove, and I think that there are facts that, you know, go both ways. The two things about the story that get me and actually sway me a little bit toward a haunting, because usually I don't really go that way, are the voice and the police report. Because I feel like that person was, like, doing a job, and, you know, and they put in their actual job that that chair moved, You know, and I think that that is really kind of a strange addition. So I don't know. I mean, of course, I'm on the fence, but I I think it could have been. And I do agree with the police report, especially I did notice the part where she said that the chair only levitated, I think you said a half inch to an inch, which makes it seem more believable to me because 
it doesn't seem exaggerated. A lot of times, you know, especially in movies, you see the chair fly up and, you know, it goes several feet off the ground. So it, it seemed like she was telling the truth just because it wasn't so fantastical. So now we want to know what you think. Have you listened to our episode on the Perrin family? If you haven't, it's episode 22. Email us your opinion on both of these cases at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Let us know if you think that the hauntings are real or fakes and why. We want to do a future bonus episode where we read your emails and your opinions. See you next week. Stay safe and remember, evil people are everywhere. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we also have a YouTube channel. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us an Apple Podcast 5-star rating sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support.